All right, well, we are in week number two of this brief sermon series uh, through the month of July in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. We're looking at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which is presented for us here. John, thanks for reading that again to us. Um, We are going to look at four different aspects of this parable over the four weeks we're going to be considering it. The first one we considered last week was just the people in the parable. We just looked at Lazarus and the rich man and their circumstances and what we could learn from that. This week, I want us to consider the places that the Lazarus, that Lazarus and the rich man went to after their death. And then in coming weeks, we'll consider um, future things about the parable. But for just this week, I want us to look at the places that they went to. So we're going to look at this uh, particular issue in the parable under three headings. I want to talk about where they went. Then I want to talk about why they didn't go where they went. And then finally, why they did go where they went. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll talk more about those places in detail. But just for this week, we're going to look at where they went, why they didn't go there, and why they did go there. So first of all, where they went. Well, we need to understand, first of all, before we get into the specific places, that Jesus is describing for us in this parable what theologians call the disembodied state. That is, the state of our souls when we die, before the return of Christ, when he comes back to resurrect our bodies on the last day. So our, if, if you're unfamiliar with biblical eschatology, that is biblical end times, last things, kinds of things, what happens at our death, then it's helpful to know this. When we die, either as Christians or non-Christians, our bodies, Christian and non-Christian, goes into the grave, and our souls either go to be with the Lord in paradise or in hell apart from the gracious presence of God. That awaits, though, a final judgment that will take place, as we saw throughout the book of Revelation when we were studying it, that will result in Christ raising our bodies, both unbeliever and believer, body and soul united back together, and then judged either in the lake of fire or, or enjoying the new heavens and the new earth with our God forever. So this, this parable is not talking about that last thing the final judgment, the resurrection of the dead. It's not talking about that yet. It's referring to the disembodied state, what happens immediately after we die before the return of Christ. While we'll cover more about these places next week, for now we see that the soul of Lazarus went to paradise, which was a conscious place of comfort and joy, and the soul of the rich man went to Hades, which according to the text is a place of torment. So let's look at each of those individually. Where did the two men go after they died? Well, first of all, in verse 22, we read the following. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So Jesus tells us that Lazarus was carried by angels to Abraham's side, or some translations use Abraham's bosom, the heart, the heart of Abraham. Now, we need to understand that Jesus is likely speaking figuratively here, okay? This, this is a parable, and not everything is to be taken exactly literally um, as intended. What is communicated here is that at death, Lazarus was carried where Abraham was, right? Abraham existed in paradise with the Lord, and Lazarus is 
joining him there. It's just a Jewish expression for paradise or heaven. Now, where did the rich man go? We see again in verse 22 into verse 23, the rich man also died and was buried and in Hades being in torment. So this term, Hades, sometimes can be used to describe the grave or the place of the dead, but oftentimes it's a translation similar to the Old Testament word Sheol, which is sometimes used in a similar way. These words are sometimes used, Hades and Sheol, to refer to a place of punishment for the wicked, which is clearly what we see in this parable. It's a place of torment. Psalm 9 verse 7 says, the wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. Wait, if Sheol is just the grave, then what is meant by the wicked going to Sheol and not the righteous? Well, that's because sometimes Sheol is pictured as a place of punishment as well. This is picked up in Proverbs 15, 24. The path of life leads upward for the prudent or the righteous or the wise that he may turn away from Sheol beneath. So it's talking about going upward to God and away from Sheol. But if Sheol's the grave, wait, that's, so you understand, Sheol is more than just the grave. Matthew eleven twenty three, Jesus says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. So again, Hades is pictured as the opposite of heaven. So I just want you to understand that. It, it, it's just... Jesus using a different word, a different common word that people would have understood in those days, describing the place of torment. So that's where they went. We see that the Lazarus was carried into paradise and the rich man was sent into Hades. Second point, why they didn't go where they went. Why did they not go where they went? Well, two points here. First of all, it was not because Lazarus was poor that he went to paradise. It was not because Lazarus was the poor man and the rich man was the rich man. And God loves the poor and God hates the rich and that's why God sends the poor to heaven and sends the rich to hell. There's nothing holy about being poor and there's nothing inherently sinful about being rich. Some poor people go to hell. Some poor people are just as unbelieving and just as ungodly and some are just as greedy and just as covetous as some rich people are. Just because a man does not have money, mark it, doesn't mean he doesn't love it. So it's not just because Lazarus was poor that he went to heaven. It's also not because the rich man was rich that he went to Hades. Being rich in and of itself is not evil, for if that were true, Abraham wouldn't be in paradise. Instead of being in paradise with Lazarus, Abraham would be in Hades because Abraham, if you read your Old Testament and know his life, was a very rich man. Indeed, the Bible assumes that some of God's people will be rich. We read in 1 Timothy 6 verse 17 where Paul writes to rich Christians the following command those who are rich in this present age to be ashamed that they are rich does it say that no it says command those who are rich in the present age not to be haughty or to trust in the uncertainty of riches 
He doesn't suggest that they are sinning by being rich. He simply warns them of the sin of trusting in riches, which we need to be warned of as well, considering we are the world's rich. No matter if you're the poorest person in this room, you're the world's rich. Paul warns us not to be conceited, not to trust in our riches for true happiness, for security, or for well-being. So the Bible gives us a little more nuanced view of riches and poverty than our world or even our Christian culture likes to think. There are some in our Christian culture that like to think that God just, I mean, if he, if he, if he really loves us, if he's really for you, if he's really in your favor, you're going you're, you're to be rich. It's the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Well, Lazarus wasn't that. Was something wrong with Lazarus? What did Lazarus do? Lazarus not have enough faith? Is that why he was not rich and afflicted with sores and laying by the hoping to get some scraps from the rich man's table? No. The Bible is more nuanced than this. The Bible pictures poverty and riches differently than we often do. The Bible actually has four categories in relationship to poverty and riches. You have the unrighteous, poor, like the sluggard in Proverbs that's lazy and poor as a result. But you also have the righteous poor, like Lazarus here, like the widow in Luke 21. You also have the unrighteous rich, like the rich young ruler in the Gospels. But you also have the righteous rich, like Abraham and Job and Joseph. So... We have to maintain this sort of biblical understanding when we come to issues of riches and poverty. It's not as simple as we often make it out to be. And it's, it goes even deeper than that because the righteous rich can sometimes become the unrighteous rich. Take Solomon, for example. But you also have the unrighteous rich becoming the righteous rich. Take Zacchaeus, for example. So the Bible is more nuanced and careful in the way we think about this, and we too need to do that. So Lazarus, to be clear, did not go to heaven because his life was marked by so much suffering and poverty. And the rich man did not go to heaven because his life was marked by so much blessing and prosperity, and he suffered so little. No, the, contempt, the temporal conditions of their lives on earth did not, in and of themselves, determine their eternal destiny. So what did? Well, that brings us to point number three, where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Why they did go where they went. So if they didn't go because of poverty and they didn't go because of riches, why did they go? Well, let's take them one at a time, all right? We're going to take the rich man first and why he went to Hades, and then we're going to take Lazarus and why he went to paradise. And two, two, two reasons for each one. All right, let's begin with the rich man. Why did he go to Hades? Look at verse 24. And he called out, that is the rich man, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this Notice what he does. The rich man says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. So here's the first reason the rich man went to Hades. The rich man had a misplaced trust. The rich man had a misplaced trust. 
He said, Father Abraham. Now, there's nothing wrong with that in general. All right, it's a parable. He's talking to Abraham. He can talk to Abraham. He can call him Father Abraham. That's a respectful title for the head of the Jewish nation. But notice what he says. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Abraham can't give him mercy. Abraham can't do anything for him spiritually to help get him out of Hades. See, to claim to have Abraham as his father was to just identify himself as a Jew. Right? He's a Jewish rich man. He's a member of the covenant nation. The rich man was indeed a physical descendant of Abraham. He was born an Israelite. He was a child of Abraham, but only according to the flesh. Remember in John chapter, or in Matthew chapter 3 and 4, where people are beginning to approach John the Baptist, who's baptizing people for repentance to usher in the Messiah and his ministry. Jesus is coming on the scene. And all these people are coming forward to be baptized. And he said, who warned you all to flee from the wrath of, to come, John says. You, you think that just because you're a child of Abraham, that this is this all you need to do? Just because you're a physical descendant of Abraham, that's all you need to do? No. No, Jesus says, or John says there. Just because they're a physical descent of Abraham, just because they're an Israelite, just because they're an external member of God's people, doesn't amount to anything eternally. There's plenty of verses that support this. Let me give you a few of them. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Paul couldn't make it any more clear when he says, they are not all Israel who are Israel. What does he mean by that? Not everyone is spiritual Israel who's physical Israel. There's a difference between spiritual Israelites and physical Israelites. Galatians 3.26, Paul identifies who those spiritual Israelites are when he says, if you are Christ, you are Abraham's seed. There's the key phrase. If you are Christ, if you belong to Jesus, you are of the seed of Abraham. He didn't belong to Jesus. The rich man did not belong to Jesus. Therefore, even calling Abraham father was a little bit disrespectful because in the deepest sense, Abraham wasn't his father because he didn't share the faith of Abraham. Romans 2, Paul says again, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. So what does this have to do with us? This rich man was not a spiritual descendant of Abraham for if he had been, he would have belonged to Christ. Your physical descent, friends, gets you nowhere with God. Just because you have Christian parents, kids, doesn't mean you're a Christian. We have to be really clear about this. Just because you have Christian parents doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because you attend church or have been baptized doesn't mean you're a Christian. Right. 
There will be many in hell who put their hope in such outward things. I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer. I got baptized. I joined the church. I did the Christian thing. I wasn't in Christ. I didn't belong to Jesus. Notice what he says also, how Abraham responds in verse 25. But Abraham said, child. He he addresses him child. Well, why did he dress him as child? Well, because he called him father. Right? So Abraham doesn't dismiss him outright and say, how dare you call me father? I'm not your father. No, he recognizes there's a physical descent here. He recognizes, yes, you're a Jew, according to the flesh. You're born in the line of Abraham, the physical line. You can call me father, I'll call you child. But interestingly, as he refers to him as child in the very next verse, by referring to him as child doesn't mean that at the deepest level, he's a child, that he's he's a son. The point is you can have all the outward privileges, a church attender with a Christian family, Family devotions, Sunday school, Christian education, memorize Bible verses, do catechism questions, and still be outside of Christ. Privileges alone do not change the heart. We have to have real heart, personal dealings with Jesus himself. Nobody can go to Jesus for you, kids. Nobody can pray for you. We'll pray for you but we're praying that you would pray yourself. We can't save you. We are calling you to be saved. We can't give Jesus to you. We're praying that you would give yourself to Jesus. We have to have real heart dealings. Kids, you have to talk to Jesus yourself. You can't just talk to Jesus when your parents are leading you in prayer. You gotta talk to Jesus yourself. Do you talk to Jesus yourself? He wants to hear from you. He wants you to talk to him, call out to him, ask him to forgive your sins, ask him to be your savior, ask him, thank him for all the ways he's blessed your life, ask him to lead you in your life, ask him to empower you by his spirit to live a life that glorifies God. Talk to him about all that. According to Matthew 11, the judgment will be worse for you. Because Jesus said, that hell is worse for the privileged than for the underprivileged. Those to whom much is given, much is required. Give the Lord all of you. He's blessed you with so much. He puts you in your family, in your church, so that you would know him. That's the whole reason. He drew you close to him before you were born. He chose you for so many blessings. And now, come on into the family. That's what he's saying. You are born on the doorstep of heaven. Don't go to hell from the doorstep of heaven. Also, notice something else about the rich man's misplaced trust. He's praying to Abraham, not God. He's called, Not only did he have misplaced trust by asking Abraham to give him mercy, but he's praying to Abraham. He's calling out to Abraham. And that is the problem with some. It's not so much that they pray the wrong things or say the wrong things. It's that 
they put a different mediator between God and themselves other than Jesus. Whether it's a pastor or a spiritual leader or a priest or saints or traditions or relics or magic, something, but something else other than Jesus. No, there is one God and there is one mediator, 1 Timothy 2.5, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You need no other man. You need no other person. You need no other trust than Christ Jesus himself. So that's the first reason. The rich man had a misplaced trust. But secondly, the rich man lived a selfish life. So born out of that misplaced trust was a selfishness that consumed his life. We see some of it described in verse 21. Lazarus covered with sores desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. All he wanted was the rich man's table scraps, and the rich man didn't even bring out the garbage and put it next to Lazarus. He didn't even do the least thing for him. least thing he could have done is walking by him every day, just throwing something his way, but he didn't do that. Didn't do that at all. He was consumed with selfishness. We even see this play out again In verses 27 to 29, look at those verses again, where the rich man again says, Then I beg you, Father Abraham, to send him to my father's house and warn them, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come to this place of torment. So in this life, Lazarus was hoping to receive some kindness, right, from this rich man. He wanted some scraps from his table. And yet instead, the rich man, instead of the rich man helping him, the dogs of the street had to do it. Instead of the rich man tending to Lazarus' sores, instead of the rich man tending to Lazarus' hunger, the dogs did it. Calvin asks the following question, John Calvin, he says, What more, what could be more monstrous than to see the dogs taking charge of a man to whom his neighbor is paying no attention. And what is more, to see the very crumbs of bread refused to a man perishing of hunger while the dogs are giving him the service of their tongues for the purpose of healing his sores. What could be more monstrous than that, than a human being ignoring another human being and the dogs having to step up and care? And worse still, then the fact that Lazarus lived that kind of selfish life was that even in Hades, he continues to treat Lazarus as beneath him. Did you notice that? Notice, what does he say? What does he say? Let's look back again in verse 24. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. Oh, you want Lazarus to serve you now. Oh, you want him to quench your thirst. Oh, you who never quenched his. Oh, you want him to care about you. Oh, you who never cared about him. Notice that Lazarus is still being treated as subordinate to this rich man. He's still eaten up with his own self-importance. He refuses to address Lazarus directly. 
he addresses Abraham. Why can't he talk to Lazarus? He's talking to Abraham. They're in the same place. He doesn't even talk to Lazarus. And he has the gall to ask Lazarus to do something for him. The very thing he would not do for Lazarus. The rich man's love of money has bloomed into a callous, self-justifying negligence of others' needs so that he is completely consumed with his own. His lack of mercy in this life found its miserable echo in not receiving mercy in the life to come. Instead of using his wealth to bless others, his property kept him blinded to his own spiritual need. He was like the other rich man we read about in another of Jesus' parables in Luke chapter 12, verses 19 and 20, where Jesus says of, the, of that rich man, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul's required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? This is, what, this is what the rich man was experiencing. We are not, now notice what we're not told, right? We aren't told that the rich man was dishonest. We're not told that the rich man was irreligious or that he was worse than average. We don't know whether he despised Lazarus, whether he spit on him. That's not said. Maybe he just walked, he just walked by him day after day after day. All we know is that he just ignored him. That's it. He just ignored him. He lived as if Lazarus didn't exist. He didn't use his God-provided blessing to care for someone in need. The passage suggests that the rich man should have brought Lazarus to his table, right? It would have been nice if he just would have said, hey, servant, run, uh, we've got a little bit of leftovers, run that out um, to Lazarus and let him have that. That would have been fine. It would have been something, right? What if he did that every day? He didn't do that. What would have been more godlike is he said, servant, go grab Lazarus. It's dinner time. He comes in every day and eats dinner with us. Do you know that? Why are you waiting? Go, get him. That's what a righteous rich man would have done. All right? He would have invited Lazarus to his table. He would have joined him at the gate. He would have cared for him. And he would have called his doctors and said, hey, those sores look really bad. We've got to take care of those. He would not have ignored him. He would not have scorned him. Brothers and sisters, what we learn here is that ignoring those who need us is not an option for the godly. In the account of the final judgment in Matthew 25, the sin that's held against the goats is not that they did something wrong to those in need. It's that they didn't do something right. It's the sin of omission that lead to eternal damnation, not always the sins of commission. There is no sin of commission that is mentioned in Matthew 25. They are all sins of omission. It's all things they failed to do. And that is in large measure why the rich man is suffering the way he's suffering because of all the things, not that he did, but that he failed to do. Scripture says that even when we're not at fault for the condition of others, we should still extend them our care. Now, this is a minute. Go back to a, several sermons ago. This doesn't mean that we can alleviate world poverty, okay? This is a parable. We need to learn that, okay? It doesn't mean that everybody that you encounter on the street deserves a buck from you. Please don't do that, all right? Read When Helping Hurts. Read Toxic Charity. Read, talk to Pastor Thad, okay? We, but we want your heart to be moved for real help, 
okay? Real help, real concern, which means we get in relationship and we, we, show, we learn life stories and we care at a deep level. It's not just throwing some change out at somebody. And God promises that he'll reward us for doing so. One of the favorite verses that Pastor Keith Maddie often quotes that is he's pressed on my soul for the rest of my life by the way he lives it and, and encourages us to live it. He who lends to, lends to a poor man lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him for his deed. So we needn't feel guilty about the abundance that God has entrusted to us, nor should we feel guilty or responsible for all the, what's going on in everybody else's lives. That's not what we're talking about here. Rather, our call is to be compassionate and wise in the use of our abundance to bless others. That's the call of the parable, to be wise in the way that we go about blessing other people. We are God's delivery people, Randy, or Randy Alcorn says, and he says, we are God's delivery people. Much of what he puts in our hands, he intends to pass on to others. He doesn't entrust his wealth to us to merely to increase our standard of living, but to increase our standard of giving so that we might invest in eternity. Jesus said, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. John Wesley wrote, put yourself in the place of every poor man and deal with him as you would have God deal with you, end quote. So again, we see the selfishness that was consuming Lazarus' life. Now, what about, or sorry, the rich man's life, not Lazarus' life. Now, what about Lazarus? How did he land in paradise? Well, two things. Just as the rich man's misplaced trust and selfish life landed him in Hades, so Lazarus' affliction led him to the Lord. All right? We at least get learned that much, right? And I want to propose to you that while affliction can never merit heaven, much like the absence of affliction served to reveal to the rich man, served to not reveal to the rich man his need, so the presence of affliction in Lazarus' life was obviously used for positive effect in Lazarus' life. Psalm 119, verse 67, reminds us of the value of affliction for some. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Or Psalm 119, 71, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. So this was obviously the case with Lazarus. The Lord's affliction of his life led him to a place of trust, dependence on the Lord. Affliction doesn't save, and affliction of itself is not good. We shouldn't be saying, yeah, it's affliction, it's really good things. Cancer's good. No, it isn't. Cancer is not good. The good things that God brings from it for his people can be good. But the affliction itself is not good. Nor is the affliction in and of itself just an automatic blessing. Think Pharaoh. Pharaoh was afflicted. His whole nation was afflicted again and again and again and again. And it yielded pseudo-repentance. So affliction is painful and hard, and it doesn't always produce a good effect. But often God will use it to humble us and to draw people to himself. Apparently, this is what the Lord did with Lazarus. We get a little hint of this in the name Lazarus. All right? So I don't want you to think I'm just inventing this. Okay? I'm trying to see deep into the parable and all that we can see here. The name Lazarus 
is probably, can't speak definitively about this, but it's probably the Hellenized or Greek version of an abbreviated form of Eliezer, which means God helps. All right, Eliezer, the Old Testament name, and for instance, Genesis 15 too, was means God helps. All right, there's a new name for you mamas, looking for a baby, call him Eli. All right, Eliezer, right? But the point is that Lazarus' deep physical need made him more sensitive to his deeper spiritual need. Okay, so through his affliction, his paralysis, his disease, his poverty, he had learned that it was vain and useless to try and seek happiness and security in this life. Lazarus, it wasn't getting any better for him. I mean, it just apart from a miracle of God, he was going to lay there on that ground for the rest of his life. But boy, did he have all the necessary things. You know, and this is something we need to learn also about uh, poor people that we interact with. Oftentimes, as James 2.5 says, when you see really poor people, you will find people who are rich in faith. Not always, but sometimes you will. James says, has not God chosen those who are eyes in the, uh, poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? So not only was Lazarus afflicted and it led him to the Lord, but secondly, Lazarus listened to Moses and the prophets. Lazarus listened to Moses and the prophets. Now, where do I get this from? I get this from, and we're going to consider this in a couple of weeks, the rich man's appeal that that's an angel or someone be sent back to his family to warn them to not come to the place that he's come to. And Abraham responds, they got Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. So evidently, Lazarus was someone who listened to Moses and the prophets. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, in much the same way that the rich man did not listen to Moses and the prophets, Lazarus obviously did. Now, what did Moses and the prophets teach? Well, let's ask Jesus. Jesus, what did Moses and the prophets teach? Jesus tells us in Luke 24 in two different places. Let me give you those verses. Luke 24, 25 to 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, here's what Moses and the prophets are teaching. Listen, thus it was written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Lazarus got to heaven because he believed that. The, what Moses and the prophets taught. Now, we don't know how, he got, how it got to him. It could have gotten to him during the days of Jesus' life. An apostle walked up to him. A, a new Christian shared the gospel with him. Or it could have been from, his, from the, the exposure that he had as a well-taught Jew, like Simeon and Anna, looking for the Messiah, knowing he's coming soon, righteous, looking out for God and trusting in all the revelation that God had given them to that point. That's what he was doing. We, don't, we can't say that Lazarus definitively knew Christ would come. Well, he knew that, but that he would suffer and die and rise three days later and that 
Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed to all his nation. We know that now. But at least Lazarus was getting some of that. And that is where his hope rested, in Christ, not in himself. So that's what got him to paradise. It was what Moses and the prophets taught about Jesus, the Messiah, to come. So with, the, with that foundation laid, let me conclude with two applications for us. We've seen where the rich man and Lazarus went and why they went there and why they didn't go there. Now I want to conclude with two points of application. First of all, the necessity of trusting Christ. The necessity of trusting Christ. Is it really clear here that you can't get to heaven on your own steam? Right? You, you can't do it. You're not, no matter what kind of life you live, I mean, Lazarus can't do much living, right? He's poor and broken and needy and sitting there dependent on people and God for everything. But Jesus said it crystal clear. No man goes to heaven apart from him. No boy, no girl, no woman. John 14, 6, John said to him, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, nothing is more characteristic of the contemporary mindset than this statement. I think Christ is fine, but I also believe a devout Muslim or Buddhist or even a good atheist will certainly find God. A slightly different version of this is, I don't think God would send a person who lives a good life to hell just because they don't believe all the right things. And this view is generally seen in our culture as very, very inclusive. It doesn't want to exclude anybody. It wants to include everybody. The universal religion of humankind says we develop a good record, we give it to God, and then he owes us. But the gospel says God develops a good record through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then he gives it to you by faith, and then you owe him. In short, to say a person can find God on their own steam is to say that good behavior is the way to God, but that's not what this parable is teaching. In essence, this view would say good people can find God, but bad people can't find God. But what happens to us moral failures? like me. We're excluded. We've blown it. You see, you can believe that people are saved by goodness, or you can believe that people are saved by grace, but you can't believe both at once. And the approach that appears inclusive at first glance is really equally exclusive, because it kicks the bad people out. The gospel says people who know they aren't good can find God, and people who think they are good cannot. Those who believe their moral efforts can help them reach God are excluded. No doubt that's what the rich man thought. He wasn't thinking that his selfishness was so heinous, but he was thinking, I'm doing pretty good. I mean, I'm rich. God's blessed my life. That's what the Old Testament teaches, right? I'm good with God. So which then is really more loving? Which approach? The one that says good people are in, bad people are out? Or the one that says the humble are in, the proud are out? Both approaches are exclusive, but the Gospels is the more inclusive exclusive. Why? 
because it says joyfully to everybody, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you've been at the very gates of hell. You can be welcomed and embraced fully and instantly through Christ. Just as, that, as it would be terrifying for us to go to hell from the gates of heaven, so it's possible to be brought to heaven from the gates of hell. That's the good news of the gospel. And so that's the necessity of trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is the second and final application? The fruit of trusting Christ. What does it look like when that's happened? What does it look like when we've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ? How do we know that we really know him? Well, lots of different ways, but something this parable teaches us that's very important as well. We learn here the importance of having sensitivity to the poverty and pain we find around us in other people's lives. A heart that's unwilling to help others because it might be risky or they might not deserve it or it might cost too much is a heart that's unwilling to recognize the desperate help we ourselves need from God. The only answer then is to help others out of a sense of our own desperate need before God. Bank balances aside, none of us is above helping others, especially those to whom we're most accountable, our family, our local church our friends, our, fam- our, our physical family. Those are, the, those are the boundaries that the Bible puts on us. It's called the principle of moral proximity. You're not responsible for fixing all the problems that are all around you in this community and in this world. You are responsible, first of all, for yourself, then for your family, then for your spiritual community, namely your church family. Let us do good to all, especially those who belong to the household of faith. Galatians 6.10. And then, yes, beyond that, your workplaces, your friendships, those, God doesn't hold you accountable in the same way for complete strangers as he does for those that you have a relationship with. And none of us are beyond or beyond the calling to help in those ways. We're all beggars helping beggars. When I see the helpless and the hurting, I see myself. We should see ourselves because... This is what we're like before God, helpless and hurting, and our heart should be moved to help. In fact, this is exactly what Paul tells the rich in this present age to do. 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So don't be guilt, don't feel false guilt. But notice verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now let me conclude with this. While physical care is important, and I don't want to minimize it because I I feel like sometimes pastors or theologians or churches can talk about what people really need is spiritual care. They, They don't need physical care. The Bible doesn't split that up like we do, right? What I like to say is what John Piper said, right, which is, God cares about all human suffering, especially eternal suffering. Okay? So that especially is important. We need to have the primacy of the gospel and spiritual need first, but not exclusive. Okay? But it is primary. It is certain, and it's easy to discount. That's the, one of the reasons I like a lot of, you know, fundamentalists arguing for that. Well, we've got to preach the gospel. It is. We need that because it's so easy to just... Oh, just love people, love people, love people. Never tell them the truth. Never tell them the truth. Never tell them the truth. No, we need both. But with that said, is there not a more better, more better, a better way, the best way 
for us to help others, not the only way, but the primary way, than to share the good news of the gospel. Certainly not, right? We live, work, and play with family, friends, neighbors who are going to live forever somewhere. If there was one thing the rich man did right in all this parable, it was that he wanted his family to be saved. That's the one thing we see that's right. For his friends and for his family not to come where he came. If the unrighteous do it, how much more should the righteous do it? you got an unrighteous man pleading for his family not to go to hell stronger than more righteous people do sometimes. Atheist Penn Jillette of the comedic duo Penn and Teller knew this fact. He said the following, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would be socially awkward and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. He was an atheist, grew up in the church, evidently, been expo- but he's like, how much do you have to hate somebody and not share the gospel with them? Atheists understand that. They may not agree with it, but they would understand, and I hope they would receive it if they're thinking rightly, as an act of love. Hey, man, I totally disagree with what you just told me, and the fact that you think that I'm going to burn forever in hell kind of bothers me a little bit, but thanks for sharing that. That's probably awkward, and I mean, you love me enough, right? That's, I mean, <laughs> is that the worst thing that can happen, you know? So let me close with this reminder from C.S. Lewis that underscores the value of people that we interact with and rub shoulders with every day. In his essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis writes of the amazing potential future glory that awaits us in the new creation as God's people. And here's what he says. It may be possible for each of us to think too much. It, is, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It's hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to one day may be a creature which if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet if all only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It's with the awe proper to it that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, marry, snub, work with, exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Now, Lewis adds this needed pastoral word. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. (laughs) We must play, but our merriment must be of the kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. We need to take people seriously. Take the people that God has placed in your life seriously. Pray for opportunities to share the gospel. Talk to God more about them than you talk to them about God. 
but talk to them about God. Because the fruit of trusting Christ is to have a heart to help others, and specifically to help them embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, sobering words for all of us to hear this morning and be reminded of. We thank you for the grace of Jesus that meets us in all of our need and gives us forgiveness and empowerment by your Holy Spirit to live the life we're called to live. Lord, may these applications not defeat us, but encourage us. Raise up the calling that we've been called. And as Paul said to the churches, I want you to live up to the calling with which we've been called. We've been given this glorious future. We've got this glorious message. We've been forgiven a mountain of sin. Let's love others the way you love us. May it start in our church family, making sure that there are no needs among us. And then may it spill out into our earthly families, into our community, so that we can love others the way that you have loved us. Though he was rich, yet he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might be made rich. Lord Jesus, you endured all that Lazarus endured to give us spiritually all that, the, that Lazarus enjoyed. You became a man, you suffered, you died, you were buried, you rose, all for our forgiveness and for our salvation. May you empower us to live as your people this week and beyond. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.